The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, it is indeed a glorious thing. We, we sing it there, that the Son lives. It means that life wins. And we can live with Him. That even when we die, we will yet live. That's possible because the Son is alive. Joined with him then, Lord, we we can know you forever. This is good news. We sing of it. Help us to think about it and to understand it. Not purely for the sake of intellectual grasping of truth, but that for the sake of rest and joy and worship. Jesus has risen from the dead. This is good news. We're going to look at a passage here in your your scripture that describes that for us. Would you make this passage live for us, please, Father? So that the reality of this, which in in many ways, particularly for us who have grown up in the church, in many ways this is very familiar to us. Will you make it live for us this morning and, and help us to rejoice in it? Maybe to understand some different aspect of it that would that would enhance our joy and enhance our worship of you. But whatever it is that we need this morning, Father, draw near by your Spirit and give that. Please clear away distraction from the room and from our hearts and minds. Help us to hear you, to understand your word. Help me to express it clearly. We are after joy this morning. We cannot find joy directly, which means really we are after you this morning, in whose presence is fullness of joy. So draw us to yourself and show us yourself for our joy and for your glory. Please do that, Spirit of God. Show us Christ in his wonder, in his goodness. Show us the Father in his wisdom and love and power and delight your people in that. Draw us to you, please. For Christ's glory and for the good of us, his people, I pray this. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to the end of Luke chapter 23 and the beginning of chapter 24. There are amazing things here. Coming out of the events we've looked at in the previous weeks and especially last week, no one expects this. No one but Jesus. Prior to this point, we've seen the authority of Christ. We saw it exercised in great humility while he also controlled everything going on around him. He directs everything, assuring 
that he is arrested, tried, condemned, and then last week finally crucified. He's done nothing to deserve this. Again and again, the voices of the official judges, Pilate and Herod, declare that this man is righteous. He's, he's innocent of every charge leveled against him. Furthermore, then a voice of one of the condemned criminals and the voice of one of the military executioners add in, he's done nothing wrong. And in fact, as we watch him, he does everything right. He's humble, caring even, praying for the people killing him and remaining faithfully dependent on God his Father, even as God his Father thrusts the cup of wrath across the table and he dies by the will of God his Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His final words, and then he died. While the sky grew ominously black, and while the temple in the curtain was torn in half, clean through top to bottom, critical pieces of evidence for us to consider as we try to decide what, what do we do with this Jesus and this crucifixion, this death? What, what do we make of it? Well, here's critical testimony. The, the curtain that God designed as a gigantic stop, no entry sign, right there in the center of the temple. The temple is designed with like, kind of like concentric squares, middle, 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 and the very middle is where God manifested his presence and hung a curtain in front of it to say no don't come in here. You can't. So God on earth is present here, and it, that curtain hangs there and keeps everyone out until, supernaturally, it's torn in half. This is a curtain that's 30 yards tall, 90 feet, 30 yards Right there in the inner, 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 inner part of the temple. Nobody snuck in there with a three-story tall ladder and tore the curtain in half. God did that. To witness to us, to, to declare something very important to us. In the death of Jesus, separation from me dies. I hang up this curtain and I say, don't come in, and then I tear it apart and say, come, Jesus, I welcome you and everybody with you I welcome you into paradise with me today. Strong testimony for us about how to interpret that death. And ironically, also, the mocking critics give us some more to think about. Three different times, people mocking him say, if you're the Christ, save yourself. Save yourself from death. Because they know that the Christ, whoever he is, would defeat death. But in effect, in their mocking, what they're saying is, look, watch, he dies. Death defeats him. He cannot be the Savior. He cannot be the Deliverer. He cannot be the King. He cannot be the way to God because death wins. Really. That's a great point. Death does not defeat the Christ. Death does not defeat the Savior. Other way around. Whoever that Savior might be, he will defeat death. Which brings us to our passage for today. Let me read, beginning in verse 50 of chapter 23 through verse 12 
of chapter 24, and then I'll draw three observations from the passage. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb, and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. It's the word of the Lord. Three observations. Here's the first. Christ has risen as he predicted. Christ has risen as he predicted. We have to begin first with the facts and establish the facts of this situation. The facts point to a message, which we'll come to eventually. We start with the facts. Jesus was dead. It's important right off to rule out what some have tried to offer as an alternative to the resurrection, namely Jesus wasn't dead but just passed out. Well, in the end of the previous passage, countless people are there watching to see him die. The centurion, for instance, he's the officer, military officer in command of the activity. It's his job to make sure that Jesus and the other two convicted criminals, that all three of them end up dead at the end of this. It's his job. He sees it. The whole crowd sees it. The death is confirmed to the Jewish leadership, many of whom were there and highly interested in Jesus dying. It's confirmed to them. It's confirmed to Pilate, the Roman governor. So all the neutral parties, the, the Romans, and all the highly motivated enemies, the Jewish leadership, 
They see it, they hear of it, and they are convinced he's dead. As too are Jesus' friends. Like Joseph of Arimathea in verse 50. In 50 to 56, we meet a couple people who are unlikely or surprising followers of Jesus. There's Joseph, who's a member of the Jewish ruling council, a good and righteous man, unlike them. It doesn't mean that he's sinless, like Jesus is righteous without sin. It means he's righteous in the Old Testament sense, that he's a man who cares about obeying God, who follows the sacrificial system and God's written word closely and looks for the coming Messiah in faith. Luke's point in describing him and then in describing the women also and telling us that both of them were really careful to observe the Sabbath law, his point is to highlight here something about Jesus' followers. They are God-fearers. They're not sinful or, or blasphemous. They do not disregard God's law. We did just see the high priest and the religious leaders commit murder how about regarding, disregarding God's law? But the followers of Jesus, in fact, are righteous. They are sinless in this biblical Old Testament sense. They do not disregard the law, but they care about it. In fact, this one disagrees with what the rulers have done, and he sticks out his neck to care for the body of Jesus. Verse 53, he takes it down and wraps it in linen burial cloths, and then he buried the body in his own brand new tomb, buried among the wealthy as, as predicted. It's an honor that he gives him. There are no other remains in this tomb, so it's a clean place where Jesus is laid in honor. Jesus is dead. Joseph knows it from his own intimate experience handling the body. And when he buried him, the women saw the tomb and saw where it was and knew how to get there. They all then either provide or prepare to further provide with the spices and ointments and whatnot. A, an honorable burial, a final resting place because they know he's dead and they completely expect him to stay there. As is the case with all the rest of his followers. The apostles and the rest in verses 9 and following, just like the women are, they are perplexed and incredulous and they do not believe this crazy talk about resurrection when they first bump into it. There is no psychological wish fulfillment going on here. Some people say that they were just wishing that it would be the case. They assume it is impossible. They never dreamed of it. In their minds, as well as with their eyes, what they've seen, and their hands with what they've touched, they know full well that he's dead and buried. And then he isn't. As usual, Luke provides us with an abbreviated version of events. In fact, all the Gospels do. They all, they all provide different details in different order. They do with the resurrection and with all the other stories in, in their various Gospels. They, they tell us different things in different ways, and sometimes we have to think about, how does this fit with that? How can we put this together? But there always is a way to put it all together. But the thing we have to keep in mind as we read one Gospel or another, that they're all telling us the truth, but all from a different perspective. 
one perspective different than the other. And so they are, they are accurate but incomplete, never comprehensive or exhaustive. It's exactly the thing you'd expect from any four people telling you about anything. Accurate, but not exhaustive. We have before us Luke's version. We're only going to deal with Luke. What do we find when Luke tells us about this surprising turn of events? The women go to the tomb on Sunday. What do they find? The heavy stone that was to block the entrance, it's rolled away. That's unexpected. Then they go into the tomb in verse 3, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Where was it? That's perplexing. It's very similar to what happened to Peter when he heard of it and ran to the tomb and saw that it was empty. He's, he's also marveling, wondering what, what to make of this. Maybe it was stolen. Another alternative people offer. Except for the fact that we get with Peter one more detail. The grave cloths Linen grave cloths were still there. Linen, valuable. The kind of thing grave robbers came to get, not leave behind. Especially when it means that they're carrying around a naked, dead body. That's not how, that's how they operate. So that rules out profiteering grave robbers. They, they left behind what was profitable. Well, maybe his followers stole the body to make it seem like he'd risen. Well, maybe, except for the fact that none of them expect this, so who's going to stage what they assume is impossible? And besides, there's this problem. The church, the, the Christian church, masses of people, they came to proclaim that they'd seen him and met him and they've sacrificed for him, even making the ultimate sacrifice of laying down their lives. And people don't do that for something that they themselves know they're lying about. It would have had to have been a, a wide lie, never once broken or never once compromised. People gone to their graves, gone, gone to their own deaths for a known lie. That's not, not how the world works. There's no way that's what happened. Grave robbers of any sort doesn't seem like it. Well, maybe, maybe the Jewish leadership moved him for safekeeping. Well, they never claimed they did. They never claimed they did. And why would they? Because they, of course, are highly motivated for him to be dead, buried, and clearly known to be so. They wouldn't want to do anything that could somehow lend to this rumor that he had risen. And once the church began to preach in Jerusalem itself that he was risen, all they had to do was bring out the body, and it puts an end to Christianity right there. That never happened. So what did happen? He's dead for certain. Theft or deliberate removal of the body seems incredibly unlikely, if not impossible. That's the situation. What happened? Incredibly, the most likely option is the only one left to us. Verse 4, while they puzzled over this, behold, two angels came. A shocking thing, the, 
The women are frightened. They fall down on their faces. This is amazing. They, they know they are in the presence of something divine, of something of heaven, and there is about to come to them a word from God to tell us what happened to the body. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Living people don't hang out in tombs. Why are you looking in the tomb for a living person? He's alive. That's what happened. He was dead, but he has risen, risen from the dead back to life. Remember, be reminded, he said this was going to happen. Back in chapter 9, verse 22, people heard it, didn't understand it, but they heard it. The Son of Man, said Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. It's in chapter 9. Chapter 18, verse 32 he, the Son of Man, will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. That's what Jesus said would happen. He used his sovereign control to direct all of the affairs around him to make sure that he was arrested, to make sure that he suffered, to make sure that he was rejected and convicted by the Jewish leadership and handed over to the Gentiles. He exercised his control to make sure he was mocked and shamed and flogged and condemned and finally crucified. He ran his own arrest. He ran his own trial. He ran even his own crucifixion. Because he's the Lord and he reigns over everything. Including the final piece of that. And he ran his own resurrection. He was raised. That's what you're looking at. That's what has happened. Jesus was dead and now lives again exactly like he predicted. That's the situation. That's the facts here. He's risen from the dead and is alive again. And this is, this is before we get into any discussion about what does that mean, we, Intellectual integrity requires us to face that and say, what is that? Now, I'm about to say what the Bible says that is. What I'm utterly convinced is. But if you're not yet convinced, you've you got to come at least to that point and say, hmm. Don't say, please don't say, never mind. I don't agree with all this salvation talk. I don't agree with this. A dead man is alive again. Don't skip by that. Stop there and look at that and say, hmm, what do I make of that? This is amazing and it is shocking and it is true. But why? That takes us to the second point. Christ is risen as he predicted. Second point, 
Christ has risen as was necessary. Christ has risen as was necessary. Verse 7, the angel reminds the women and us of what Jesus said, quotes it there, the Son of Man must be delivered, crucified, raised. Must be. We saw that most clearly in the, in the 922 quote. It's the same thing. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. That word must. It's not just this is going to be the case, but rather it is necessary that this be the case. There is prediction here. It's a telling of the future, but it's a future that must be. But not just, notice this carefully, it's not just that all this must be because he predicted it. He predicted it because it must be. The necessity comes before Jesus speaks. We can tell that because he announced the necessity. I must be such and such. The necessity lies back in the plan and the purpose of God. God meant to do something. Before it happens, God means to turn over the Son. He means to have Him crucified and to raise Him again. It's all planned by God. It must be because of the nature and because of the desire of God. His nature. He is a God of grace and of mercy. He is gracious. He is merciful. He's not just, we think about the character of God, we have to be clear that he did not take onto himself these traits that he found good. He is those things. That's why they're good. He is gracious. He is merciful. And he is just. And he is righteous. Both, always, at the same time. He is a God of holy love. He is a God of righteous and just, gracious and mercy. Always together. That's his nature. And he determined, he planned, he decided and then counseled himself and then executed. He determined to save a people for himself. He determined to save individual people, particular people. Who are sinners. Every one of them. Every one of us. Wanting to save a people to himself, wanting to have particular ones drawn close to him, and being gracious and merciful. We can see how that works, but what about the righteous and just part? How does he deal with people who are sinners and draw them into his presence? He's a plan for that. A plan that would both vindicate his righteousness and his justice and satisfy his gracious and merciful self. This is his good news, his gospel to send his son, God the Son, to suffer and die in the place of sinful people, to pay the sin penalty that his righteousness and justice requires so they can be brought close as his grace and mercy desires. 
This must be, given the nature and given the desire of God, that sin be paid for and that people be forgiven in that paying of sin and that atonement. That's the cross. Where Christ suffers, he must suffer. Where Christ is crucified, he must be crucified to take the curse of God onto himself and off of me. If you want to think of it like this, it's a little bit like like writing a check to pay for a debt. At the cross, God writes a check to pay the debt, to pay it to himself, in fact. He writes a check, and when we, when we carry on a transaction like that, we write a check, we give a receipt that says paid in full on it, and we put the check in the bank. We deposit it in the bank. But to paraphrase a modern artist commenting on the gospel, believers can all cheer at the resurrection because the resurrection says that the check cleared. If the check bounces, then actually the debt isn't paid. He must suffer and he must be crucified and he must be raised to clear the check, to confirm to vindicate, to show and to declare this works. This is good news. This is forgiveness. This is satisfaction of sin. This is drawing close to people who trust this Jesus, this one. He's the one I am well pleased with, not the one I am angry with. In fact, in the end, I am delighted in him because he has accomplished my desire in a way that satisfies my nature. He has atoned for sin, vindicated my righteousness, and saved to me a people, my beloved ones. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Resurrection declares that out loud as he brings them out of the grave approved, not cursed, enthroned, not buried. It is necessary because of the plan of God, and it is necessary because of the, the desire and the nature of God. This is the gospel Christ crucified and raised. There's a little more we should think about here. A little more in this must be. And this little more separates the resurrection from some other type of declaration about this is the one that is the one I approve of. This is the one that, I, that is my son. I said the words. We can remember there was another time the baptism of Jesus, when the voice from heaven said of this one coming out of the water, that's my son with whom I am well pleased. So is the resurrection just another declaration of that? Well, it is that. It is saying that Jesus is approved by the Father. It is saying that he's not to be avoided, but to be embraced. He is, in fact, the Savior and the King. But it does something more. Emphasis on does something more. Not only declares, it does. The resurrection defeats death. There is something wonderful to note here. 
God has planned and then provided someone to fight on our behalf to defeat for us our great haunting enemy. In, in a legal sense, sin is our great problem and judgment is our great problem, but many people in the world are, are not aware of that, discount that, overlook that, are unaware of that even. But we all live all of our lives carrying on aware of the great elephant in the room. We're all going to die. We all are dying right now. Not in an acute sense, but in a grand sense, we're on the way. All of us. All of our loved ones. That is, the people that are most precious to us. The people who make life worth living, as we say, whose existence brings joy and depth to life. The people around us, right next to us, closest to us, who give tangible, practical, day-by-day -day application of that which is the greatest human experience, relational love. We talk about the concept. We, we think about, we, we sing, turn on the radio, every song's about love. But where does the concept become tangible and practical? In, in your loved ones, in the people right next to you. The closer they are, the more deeply they are your beloved. That kind of love, that relational love, the, particularly the up-close personal, you can see it, you can feel it, that's at the core of what's beautiful about life, what we long for in life. Relational love and death takes that away with real hard finality. Your mother, your father, your daughter, your son, your grandchild, your wife, your husband, your dearest lifelong friend, your comrade in arms, the ones you stay up at night worrying about, the ones you sacrifice for and are ready to sacrifice more for, Maybe just the ones that you really, really hope are going to make it home for the holidays because you just long to see them and hear their voice and feel their embrace. And your heart almost aches that they're not home right now. You're going to put that person in the ground one day and walk away. Unless they bury you first. Or unless she dies in a plane crash over the ocean or unless he can't be recovered from the combat zone. Death is terrible. 
We try not to think about it, and we kind of wish people wouldn't bring it up because it's such a downer. We kind of wish people wouldn't press it on us and make us keep thinking about it. We really wish people wouldn't strip away the euphemisms, moved on, passed away, died, and is decomposing. Ooh, really? Did you have to say that? Death is terrible. I try to camouflage it sometimes behind this nonsense about death being a part of life. So just, you know, deal with it. It's it's part of a life. Acne and arthritis are part of life. Death is the ceasing of life. That's the problem. They are not the same. Death brings a final end of our relating to the people that we most dearly loved and are now gone. We have to put it in the past tense because though we remember loving them, they're not here. There's no more relating. We remember the love. We remember the delight and the fun and the sweetness, but it's all bittersweet now because all we have is the photograph and the picture in our mind and if we're honest about it, sometimes those people begin to fade away and we, and we mourn the fading, but it's real. Death is terrible. And if you want shalom, the state of communal wholeness and peace and rest and joy, shalom if you want that, and we all desperately do, then you got to deal with death. If you want a kingdom of shalom, as God deeply does, a kingdom where he has created communal wholeness and peace and rest and joy for the glory of his own wisdom and power and for the good of his beloved ones, if you want a kingdom of shalom, you got to deal with death. Because the two do not mix. You must take out the terrible, the gut-wrenching sting of death. You must defeat it. Must. It is necessary that death be defeated. And that's what God has done in the resurrection. Christ went to his death He died, torn, bleeding, pierced, suffocated, and then gone. And all of his earthly friends and his own mother watched him go weeping. And then he rose again with a new resurrection body, new and improved, no longer subject to decay, no longer subject to death. He lives forever now with a new body that's able to relate, that's able to to play, that's able to frolic even, and able to commune and to love and to think and to act and to work, a resurrection body with a resurrection mind and a resurrection heart, just like we will have if we trust him. We have what we have because we were joined spiritually and in a way that's very, very real, joined to Adam. And therefore, we have a nature and have a body like this. 
It's a spiritual union that you can say, I see that it's real because my heart is bent in a certain way and my body is going just like his. And by faith, we can be joined to this Jesus in a spiritual way that will be very real and we'll be able to see it. My mind and my heart goes a different way and my body raises up and lives. Raised with him to be like him to never sin again, to never decay again, to never die again. Raised immortal to live in holy, living community with Christ himself perfectly as the fulfilling center of it all, never to know the elephant in the room again because there isn't any elephant in the room anymore. He's gone. Death under sin's curse cuts us off from God, cuts us off from life, cuts us off from love, cuts us off from community. Death, by Christ's resurrection, transports us into God's presence, into life, into love, and into community with him and with his people forever and ever into shalom. Death as enemy is defeated and made servant of us in the end. Death is turned into a door into life. He wanted to make a kingdom of glory. He had to deliver us into shalom from death, and he did that in Jesus, suffering, crucified, and raised again. Be reminded of this, Christian. Remember. Jesus said this. It must be. Paul said this. The writer of the Hebrews said this. Be reminded of this, Christian. It is true of you. It's what enables us to, to say crazy things and to sing crazy things. There's a song sometime back written, It is not death to die. Well, they're just channeling Jesus' words. He who believes in me, though he dies, will live. And he who believes in me can never die. Well, he can, he can but he can't. This is you. This is you. Remember this. If you're not mindful, you're going to live in fear of death now and live forlorn at all of the little deaths, all the losses of this life that you experience Business things and relational things and health things take a turn here and there and you feel a little loss of life and you're going to live forlorn because this is the life you have if you don't realize, I've got another one. You're going to fear death and live forlorn over all the disappointments and pains and sorrows of loss here. Now, it is still normal to sorrow and loss because there's something really wrong about death, period. But we don't sorrow and mourn and loss, and, uh, loss and grieve it like those who have no hope because we have a hope, unless you don't have a hope. Do you remember? Be reminded of this. And if you're not a Christian at this moment, do you see that there's a hope here to be had that the great enemy... 
can be dealt with in one place, in Jesus. Only in Jesus. There's a great hope there for you. Something you could embrace and rest in if you were to embrace and rest in Christ. A chance to face reality and not deny it. Death and not deny it, but to face it and live through it knowing you will live beyond it because of Christ. That's a great hope there. And it takes us to the final observation. Christ has risen like he predicted. Christ has risen as was necessary. Christ has risen. Question, can you believe it? Christ has risen. Can you believe it? I come to this question by asking another question of the passage. Why doesn't Luke tell us about Mary meeting and talking with the risen Jesus? Now, yeah, all the Gospels tell us different things in different orders for different reasons. John tells us about that. But why does Luke skip that? I think in part, it's because for his stylistic reasons, he wants to save the first appearance of Jesus for the next passage on the road to Emmaus. But it also has this purpose. It leaves us faced with a question of belief just like the disciples were faced with that question right here in the passage. This resurrection account, all through it, it carries with it a theme of incredulity, of, of, of disbelief, a, a shaking of the head sort of. People just can't believe it. They can't wrap their heads around it. The women are perplexed in verse 4, and then finally when they tell the apostles and the rest, those folks all think it an idle tale, and they don't believe them. It's verse 11. And Peter, you can see in Peter's running there that he kind of wants to believe it, but even at the end, he's left amazed. He's kind of left, this is too good to be true. Can this be true? And that's the final note of the passage. This is a section that's designed to put us in that same spot, seeing it and, and wondering, this is too good to be true. Can, can this be true? The section is built around the experience of and then witness by women. Now, throughout the Gospel of Luke, we've seen this here and there every now and then, but repeatedly, Luke highlights the role of women and other disadvantaged people but women in particular, to make clear that women have an important stake in this group of followers. It's also clear that the role of men and women is different, but they are not of different value. Luke brings that out. So that may be part of what's going on here, but it was God that providentially decided that the angels would be there to speak to the women and then be gone by the time Peter got there. Assuring that the first witness to the resurrection was a group of women. Key point, who in that day 
had dubious legal standing. Whose testimony carried dubious legal weight. Not today, but in that day, people viewed women a bit like we might view children today. I'm not saying this is right, I'm saying this was. We think of children. Can, can children tell the truth? Can children be reliable? Well, sure, of course they can. On the other hand, we also today think, we realize, children often get confused about things and sometimes don't understand subtle tricks that adults are playing on them. So we take the testimony of children with a little bit of a grain of salt. That's women back then. And so the disciples are in this story left with testimony. Somebody's calling. The disciples back then are left with testimony. Here's the evidence the tomb's empty, except for the shroud. He told us that he would rise again. And these women tell us that angels came and reminded them of that and, and expressed that what's happened is that he's come back to life. And it's not nailed down. You're a moron. You're an idiot if you don't believe it. Because it's women saying it. What do we do with that? Well, the fact that Jesus is not, does not appear here in this story kind of leaves us in the same spot. We haven't seen him yet. We've just seen the facts, heard the testimony. What do we do with that? It's almost too good to be true. Can this be true? What do you think? It is reasonable, given the facts and the possibilities and impossibilities, and given what we have seen and heard already from Jesus, we have a whole book worth of testimony to the wisdom and the power of God in Christ. It's reasonable, and it is exactly what we need. Forgiveness and freedom and life offered life offered to all who will come by humble faith and receive it it isn't even offered if you'll come and pay some high price this is so good it's laid out in front of you it's not and do this and do this and do this and do this and then maybe you'll be good enough in the end no it's a free offer laid in front of you it is so good which, incidentally, accords with the goodness of God, does it not? That sounds like a God of grace. That sounds like a God of mercy. That sounds like a God of love. And it sounds like a God of justice and righteousness who would not sweep sin away but would deal with it. What an offer. That's almost too good to be true. Can that be true? What do you think?
Ultimately, it comes down to a question of faith. It is not groundless faith. It is not leap of faith into nothing. But it is faith. Can you see it? Can you believe it? Does it resonate and ring true with you? Is the glory of the wonder of it reaching you and calling out to you? Come, come. Come and look at the tomb. It's empty. He has risen and death is defeated and forgiveness of sin and access to God and to life forevermore. Access to wide and long and high and deep love is available in the cross and in the empty tomb only there in Jesus, but surely and truly there in Jesus. Trust yourself to him and live. And never forget it. Be reminded of it and call it to mind regularly. Christ has been raised for you, giving you life forever. That is good news. Can you believe that? Let me pray. Father, would you open our eyes and show us you in your beauty? that you would make such an impossible thing real. Not the impossible thing that a dead person would live, but the impossible thing that a person like me, that people like us, can be loved and brought near by you, the Holy, Holy, Holy One. You have made that not just possible, but real, and you have done that yourself in sending your Son to die and to live again for us. Blessed be your holy name. Will you lift up yourself and your beauty in our eyes and draw us to you, maybe for the first time, maybe again refreshed. You are good, you are good, you are good. Help us to rest in you and to trust you and to follow after you all of our days. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.